Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Sisters in Colour, the amazing podcast where we bring you women of colour from around the globe who come on here to tell us their story and give us a glimpse into who they are, what drives them, what they're passionate about, and the things that they're doing to change the world. Today, I have a dear friend of mine, Yul, and she is doing amazing things in the world of changing how we view our race. She's going to talk to us about the things that she's passionate about, how she's built her career, and how she's thriving here in Australia. So Yul, welcome to Sisters in Colour. Thank you very much, Christine. Thank you for inviting me on this amazing podcast. I have been following you and listening to you and we've had very side personal conversations. So I'm so happy that I get to speak to you today and you get to interview me. <laughs> uh, we're really excited. Now, you know, uh, as a start, can you tell our audience, because obviously they don't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Okay. Um, well, it's a, <laughs> it's a big question, isn't it? Because who, who we are, do we actually really know who we are? And I suppose for me, it's been, it's been a process. It's been a process of learning. It's been a process of reflection. And this year I turned the big five zero and it's a massive milestone, Christine. And I've had to relook at what I do, how I do it, not just as a professional woman, but also as a mother and also as an ancestor, what I really want to leave and the legacy that I want to be known for and um, how do I add value to the world. So the last few years, I've had major changes in my career, but the start of that journey for me is when, well, actually today, today is the 40th anniversary of my family's arrival in Brisbane, um, Australia, after we were accepted as refugees and we were granted a humanitarian visa to come to Australia and start a new life. Prior to that, the first 10 years of my life, I had lived the first five, six years in Vietnam and we had to flee the Vietnam War. Uh, um, sorry, after the fall of Saigon in 1975, my family were very much in hiding up until the in 1979, when my father was able to um, strategize, I would say, I would say strategize, because it took a lot of planning and um, strategies, and do it in darkness, in stealth mode, so that his family could escape um, Vietnam for safety for safety, but also a chance to have a future, to provide his children with the opportunity of a future, of life and of the ability to have children and have and raise the next generation. You know, it's really important to me. And I reflect as I get older, I often reflect on that um, point. So the, the journey wasn't easy. The journey was tough traumatic we were separated on a number of occasions however living in a refugee camp for in a total three close to four years before that day the 25th of April 1983 we were um we were Australians we came here and accepted um by Australia 
to safety. And our family have been extremely grateful. And that's how I've kind of journeyed my whole existence in Australia. Um, learn English took me a year to learn the language. Although I was able to understand what people were saying to me, I didn't have the words to articulate my thoughts and my feelings. And so for the first year predominantly, I stood and I observed and things were happening to me, if that makes sense. I watched and I experienced. And I experienced um, a lot of love, a lot of support, particularly from young children. And I don't currently live very far from the area that we grew up in. So if your listeners know Brisbane well, if they're here, if they live in Brisbane, the Arthur Gorey Correctional Centre that is off the Ipswich Highway used to be the immigration hostel. And that's where most refugees during that time, the early 80s, but um, from maybe 1975 onwards, were placed. And it wasn't just uh, Vietnamese refugees. There were refugees from around the world, um, from Europe, Northern Europe, Mm -hmm. Eastern Europe. And we got to, well, at least I did play with so many other children who um, also came and were starting their life, you know, brand new in this in this state. So Arthur Gorey, and when I, it's a prison now, but it used to be a beautiful hostel, communal place where we would have our lunches made for us and a bus would come and all the children would line up and get on the bus and a um, Ukrainian, Yugoslav, Russian, I wasn't sure who, like what his background was, but he was the mm-hmm. cook. And he would make oh, yeah. he would make our sandwiches right with um, ham ham and cheese sandwich and put into a mm-hmm. paper bag and that was our lunch. But I didn't know how to eat it because I wasn't familiar with the food, and so mm-hmm. those brings you know it brings back really fond memories. And my family moved to Goodna, which isn't very far mm-hmm. from Wakol, and I've lived in the area ever since. And my family still live in the area. And that's because, you know, when you've been displaced, you mm-hmm. tend to want to just settle and attach yourself to that place because you want to belong. You yeah. want to be part of that community. You want to give back to that community. And that sense of wanting to be part of that community was very strong for me from a very young age. So as a school child, I, at the age of 10 at the local Goodness State School, I just observed, took in and absorbed pretty much the language and what was going on around me, the culture that was being developed around me. The support was fantastic and I made a lot of friends. Most of my closest friends were predominantly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. Mm-hmm. And what bonded or connected us together was the bullying and the racism that we experienced. Even at that very young age, I knew when I was being treated differently because mm-hmm. of my language, but because at that time we were the only two fam- Vietnamese or Asian families in the school or in the area. So we stood out. Right? We stood out. We didn't speak English or when we did speak something, it sounded strange to the kids because my older brother and my younger brother were with me. And so we were teased a lot by other children. Um, teachers were often unintentionally, mean 
just through their comments here and there. I, don't know, I mentioned the other day to a colleague of mine that as a 10-year-old didn't understand English, well, didn't speak English very well, but I understood what she said was mm -hmm. so powerful that it stayed with me and it was hurtful, but it mm -hmm. stayed with me and it's become this, this driver, this mm -hmm. internal driver where I either now joke about it or I use it to drive the ambitions that I have to change the world so that another child wouldn't have to be denigrated in such a way. And what she said, the statement or the comment she made to me was that, um, and this is also the precursor to the work that I do now, Christine, Yeah, the work of our race. The work that we are so, and I'm so passionate about in mm -hmm. driving and getting it out there and supporting and making it accessible and free for community members. And what she said to me was she was a, my year five teacher. And she called me to stand up in the middle of the class and I had to recite the times tables, right? Mm -hmm. And I got to, I think the, you know, um, was, I could do number, you know, the um, first few. But I think, you know, three, my three times table, I wasn't very good at and okay. I had memorized it and I didn't get it right. And so she proceeded to berate me and said, you know, you are the dumbest Asian kid that I've ever met. Wow. And so, yeah, yeah, because I couldn't recite the times table. And I, I remember the feeling that she wasn't being nice. She mm -hmm. wasn't being nice and she was being mean to me, but mm -hmm. I didn't understand how to say anything back to her to say that, you know what, there is a story behind here. And that story, yeah. the story, right, is so um, full of hardship and hard work and effort, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, but you didn't recognize that. And I felt there was an injustice. So that mm -hmm. level of injustice was in me and I wanted to argue and yell at her, but I didn't know the words. I didn't know what yeah. to say and I was angry with myself. And, you know, that statement has stayed with me until now. And I often, um, I know, and it sounds weird, but you know, she's still, she's passed now, but when she was alive, she lived in a suburb that's adjoining to where I lived and um, she used to invite kids to her house at the end of the school year because she had a pool and every kid loves a pool. And back then, you know, to have a pool, you must be rich, right? Because we yeah. lived in a housing commission house, you know, my parents had to work in factories for long, long hours and I was pretty much the carer for my younger siblings. And that mm -hmm. was the story of why, and I wanted to tell her that, but I mm -hmm. don't know whether she cared or not, but it mattered to me that in our family, everybody had a role mm -hmm. to survive in this country, right? Mm -hmm. As a new migrant, when you're resettling, everybody has a role, whether you are two or 42, 52, whatever it is, it was a parent, right? The parent's role was to go and work, which is what mm -hmm. my parents did was work extensive hours the children had to look after each other so mm -hmm. being the eldest in the eldest girl in the family a lot of that responsibility fell on me and I had mm -hmm. three younger siblings had to take them to school 
did my schoolwork, come home, cooked and made sure that they were bathed every night, did their homework, fed and in bed before my mother would get home from her factory work at Golden Circle Cannery up in um, Northgate. And we lived in Goodna. So that was a mm -hmm. fair trek for her. And she, you know, would get up at five o'clock in the morning to catch the train and go and work and do overtime when it was offered because mm -hmm. you, we needed the money. In the afternoon, my dad would go off to his work at Visiboard in a factory. Mm -hmm. And that was the yeah. night shift. So that was, you know, our survival. And so the part where do I get to do my homework? Do I get to study and learn my times table? Mm -hmm. That was a luxury. That was just, you know, I was learning through osmosis. <laughs> you were learning through. And I think one of the most fascinating things that people uh, and what I love about having conversations with, with women is people don't understand when they see you now, the journey that you have taken, which is why I always ask people the question, well, tell us a bit about who you are. So just take us a little bit back in terms of um, the refugee experience. Now, I think a lot of um, people who look at migrant people don't actually understand that our journeys and our pathways here are very, very different. Mm -hmm. So you are, um, you are here because of uh, the Vietnam war yeah. and um that's the sole reason that you mm. came to australia and your family was displaced and i think what we now know with neuroscience uh you know that those formative years and mm. as you say you know that teacher's conversation really really stayed with you and it shaped you into the person that you are tell us a little bit about you know what was schooling like outside of that experience you know what was um Australian schooling like with um you know the the education system was it more or less reflective of what it looks like now was it quite different um back then what was the education what what is it that you can remember about the education system now and contrasting it with what your children are going through now Hmm. I don't think there's been a huge change in terms of when I went to school and what I was exposed to and the the content or the curricu curriculum. My children went through pri yeah, private school. I went to a public mm -hmm. school, but um, mm -hmm. my son recently moved from a private school to a public school. And I, I don't think, yeah, I don't believe the curriculum has changed so much because it's still very structured. I, mm -hmm. as a young child, I didn't know what was right or wrong in, in the mm -hmm. sense of when I say right or wrong, not, not my moral development. So, or my ethics, I, I think I found out and I knew that from a very young age, because I lived in a refugee camp um, most of that time on my own as a five-year-old and survived it. So but the exposure and I think the the knowledge that was provided to me, that was decided for me, right? I I took in because I was part of that system. I had no power. I had no access to resources. I had no access to other information. So you took what you had. So I'm very now conscious that, understanding that what I went through, it's a similar, it's the same system as my children, right? Because our education mm -hmm. system hasn't evolved that much. Yes, no. we tweaked a little bit here and there, but it hasn't really changed so much. And so I talk to my children a lot. 
I have a 21-year-old. She turned 21 mm-hmm. last year, and she's doing a double degree in law and business at Griffith mm-hmm. University. She's in her fourth year. So I've seen her go through right, a very large part of her life being exposed to our educational system. And my son is in year 12, doing his final year. And although you know my children are incredibly bright, I'm so lucky because they're incredibly bright and they are savvy in what they need to learn and how they learn. I also have a need to have conversations with them around questioning. Question what you are being taught, right? Make sure you really um, understand the source or who is telling you that story. Where is that story coming from? Because everything that you digest, everything that you take in, you're consuming is a form of a story. It's a yeah. form, information is a form of a story, right? And then you interpret that into your head, you formulate that and you make sense of it. And then if you do what the system asks you to do, you regurgitate it back into society. And so I'm very conscious of the way in which we perpetuate uh, oppressive practices and Mm -hmm. we oppress um, people in our communities or communities um, who are historically not recognized or historically oppressed. And, And this is where the history of this country has become such a profound piece of knowledge you know, for me. And I came to that conclusion a long time ago during my younger school in primary school, because as I said earlier, most of my friends were Aboriginal children. Mm-hmm. Reggie was one of my best friends, right? I had a um, a white friend. My best mm-hmm. friend, Laura Morris, was my best friend in throughout um, a primary school, but I always had Reggie. And Reggie was an Aboriginal young man who we stood together against bullies. We mm-hmm. protected me when my hair was being pulled because I had long hair and I put it in a ponytail and I often get pulled, right? And mm-hmm. he'd stand up for me. Um, I would do for him. So I think it's through his friendship that I learned how oppressive and how dismissive white Australian society has been of First Nations stories and cultures mm-hmm. and practices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think the curriculum hasn't really changed. It's mm-hmm. teaching our children to just consume without mm-hmm. questioning. Without questioning, and I think that's that's true of a lot of educational a lot of educational systems. Now, tell me a bit about your early career. What what inspired you? Like first up, when you left high when you left high school, um, you know, what did you do afterwards? You um, obviously you've got you know higher education what was that pathway like for you that sort of started to form your early your early career um when I finished high school well in in high school I just had this deep interest in behaviors people human mm-hmm. behaviors how people mm-hmm. behave why they behave and trying mm-hmm. to understand you know what is behind that what's the thinking behind that and I had this amazing English teacher Mm-hmm. And to you, and so to go back in terms of, um, there's a, a the precursor or the back, you know, the backstory is, you know, that comment around me not 
being very good at maths or you know not being able to recite my times tables mm-hmm. somehow that has been ingrained in me for such mm-hmm. a long and still still is still very much in me is that I tell myself I'm really terrible with maths yeah and then it's the undercurrent of why I've chosen the career probably that I've chosen and the work that mm-hmm. I am doing now and so I've always avoided uh, professions or areas where required math because <laughs> I didn't want to be shamed. I can relate to that. <laughs> I didn't want to be I shamed. Can definitely, yeah, yeah I, I mean, shame is such a deep, you know, it's such a deep-seated thing. Yeah. And I remember uh, when I was in high school, my maths teacher wrote to my father that um, a pass is no longer guaranteed in maths. <laughs> and at that time, I wanted to be a genetic engineer. And there was no ways I could do the engineering aspect and everything that I could do without strong maths. So I gave up something that I was really passionate about because that shame was locked in. Like, like it was, it was written. I wrote, she wrote it on my report card that a pass is no longer guaranteed. I did pass, but, (laughs) but it, it, I, I totally understand that you carry that shame um, with you and it does limit you. Yeah. And it is, oh, thank you for saying that because I thought, am I silly in carrying that for these years? Because mm-hmm. what, if, what if I'm good at math? I just never mm-hmm. gave myself the chance. Do you know, I, I opted out before I even entered the race. Mm-hmm. And that's, and I sit back as an older, hopefully wiser woman thinking mm-hmm. about that. However, I wouldn't have, I, I wouldn't change what I do now because I love what I do and how I do it. But I knew that I was very good at working with people, interacting, connecting with people. As long as I had my language, as long as I was able to articulate and be able to string together um, words and put it together in a way that showed the emotions that I was carrying. Mm-hmm. what other people were carrying so I had a very supportive English teacher who said to me and I had never thought of psychology to be honest I'd never thought I didn't think because my world was very much around even though I studied right my world Mm -hmm. was only about my family I was still um a a carer yeah I was still very much right a carer a carer for my siblings I care for my parents because they don't, mm-hmm. they didn't speak English. So when I say caring, it wasn't physical caring. It was life caring, you know, going to the bank with them, going to the bank as a 14 year old to interpret mortgage details, right? How to get a loan, right? Um, how to get insurance. It's negotiating insurances. If buy to go and buy a car, all those life adult things I'd had to mm. do from a very young age so priority on my schoolwork wasn't number one Mm -hmm. however there's this conflicting and I think many migrant children would read this would resonate and and um, understand this is you're traveling you're straddling two worlds right you're straddling two worlds where you're trying to also be the provider because I was also working uh, and supporting and contributing money to the household mm-hmm. yeah but we are often then told by our parents from a cultural expectation a cultural requirement is you need to 
be either a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. Right, you know, yes, those are the only those are the only three careers. Yes, yes. <laughs> Back, yeah, I don't know about now. Right. I, yeah. I don't know because I don't parent in that way. But yeah. back then, back in the 80s, in the early 90s, it was most of the Vietnamese family and we're a small community here back then. It okay. has grown dramatically since. But back then, most um, families, when they get together, parents get together, it was comparing if their child had gotten into medicine, law mm-hmm. or engineering or mm-hmm pharmacy, you know, some really fancy and um, difficult professions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I thought, do you know what? I don't like any of those. Yeah. So what's my option? (laughs) Yeah. Failure. Or Mm -hmm. you bring shame to your family, right? Mm -hmm. So if you didn't fit into those categories, then, yeah, what do you do? So I didn't realize that psychology was was an option. And the thing is that, um, there's a lot of stigma as well. There's a stigma, there's yes. taboo. When we yes. talk about mental health, so psychology, the human mind and how it operates and we how to understand that is um, not very well known in Asian countries. And when I say, I'm saying Asian because obviously I'm from Vietnam and that's been, that's my experience. And my parents' understanding of psychology, and I didn't even know, the word psychology in Vietnamese to translate it to them. Mm-hmm. But my English teacher said to me, you have a, um, a not a talent, but you've got this um, ability to listen and to understand and comprehend when someone speaks about their emotions. And she kept encouraging me mm-hmm. throughout my um, senior years and she was so fantastic that that had that stuck in my head. And when I told my parents I wanted to do that, they said, no, you can't do that because the understanding that they had was if you were talking to, well, the only reason someone is acting weird right, and, and um, crazy is because they're possessed and they're crazy mm-hmm. yeah. and they're possessed by spirits and that they're crazy. And if you work with them, it's contagious. So you're going to be crazy too. So they, in in a lot of ways, didn't want me to study that because they didn't want me to be crazy because I'll come home and I will I would infect them. <laughs> sounds logical, but it it's it sounds. Yeah. But a lot of um and a lot of our cultures in terms of mental health, there just isn't that understanding, and you find that people in our communities really really struggle with. Um, with mental health challenges, they don't seek help because there's mm-hmm. stigmatization within our communities. And I think that is quite universal. We share that. Um, even in the Australian community, like it's mental health is only something that I think slowly we're starting to get a grips with. And mm. um, I want to get to, right. um, so what did you study in, 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 in university? What was your bachelor's, what was your bachelor's degree? So I ended up going into uh, a Bachelor of Interior Design. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and through that, um, and through that, I discovered psychology. And so mm-hmm. then I moved over to UQ and I did the social science um, because psychology was part of either an arts degree or mm-hmm. a social science degree, behavioral science. 
behavioral and, science. Yeah. Okay. And so I did behavioral science and um, my two major um majored in psychology obviously uh and also international community development okay. and I wanted to do yeah sorry so, oh no I was gonna say so that segued you into a career in government initially no uh, well ex well yes and no um because what I wanted to do I wanted to specialize and work in uh international or humanitarian aid work okay yeah so aid work and I thought the international community development as you know major would help me get there the okay. the linkage to that is because the red cross throughout mm -hmm. my experience living in a refugee camp and mm -hmm. coming here the red cross had been a huge dominant figure um in 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 my um in my interactions, um, you know, we were brought to the Red Cross store to get all of our clothes, our secondhand clothes, and to set up housing. And, you know, um, we were supported really well by the Australian Red Cross and the Red Crescent when I was overseas. And when we were overseas, because I was separated from my parents, it was Australian, uh, sorry, the International um, Red Crescent mm -hmm. that you um, reunited my parents and I through their tracing service. They've got an tr international tracing service that brings together family members who've been displaced by natural disasters or war. So okay. that was, I wanted to give back. That had been a mm -hmm. dominant feature of my younger experience and I wanted mm -hmm. to give back. So I did that, ended up working in a community centre in Anala mm -hmm. um, while I was obviously studying as a young mm -hmm. person. Nala Community House. I worked in a number of community programs there and then got to manage the settlement program. Um, it's called the CSSS at the time um, mm -hmm. and worked there because I knew the experience that my family and I had mm -hmm. and I wanted to be able to provide a level of support, lived experience and navigate, help them navigate the system. Because I'd navigated that system since the age of 10, right? Yeah. Um, my family. So you, so you had the skills. Yeah, I definitely had the skills to do that. So mm -hmm. I worked for, yeah, Anala Community House for a while. And then a friend of mine who left the organization said to me, hey, there's a position going on at the Red Cross. You've always talked about the Red Cross. I think you'll be perfect mm -hmm. for the Red Cross. Mm -hmm. Why don't you come and work with us? And mm -hmm. so Debbie, her name is Debbie. And so I, um, yeah, I put in an application and I was successful. And it was a position to be a case manager mm -hmm. working within their migration program. They had mm -hmm. several migration, uh, they had several programs under the bigger migration service. And the case management role was to, case manage and provide complex uh, trauma support to mm -hmm. those who came as refugees. Oh, okay. As refugees. So it was, a full, it was kind of a full circle moment for you. Yeah, definitely. And that's where I was able to use a lot of the stuff that I knew, a lot of the stuff that I learned at, at university as well, some mm -hmm. of, you know, the theories. But because through university, you're not taught um, – so I didn't go on to specialize as a psychologist because, mm. which is strange, and here I'm kind of taking a tangent dive, mm -hmm. which is strange because I was reflecting on it and my son is very interested in doing psychology and okay. he's mapping his whole 
um, schooling and he will, yeah, he, he's very fixated on doing psychology, but performance psychology. And I thought, you know what, the psychology degree itself is very elitist. You, mm -hmm. you have to be pretty, you have to be very um, privileged with mm -hmm. a lot of resources because what happens is that you do your three years undergrad and you have to have enough G, you know, GPA would have to be a minimum of a six mm -hmm. to be able to be invited to do honours, right? So you do your honours for a year and then you go on to do either a coursework, a master's coursework, um, mm -hmm. or you do the two years free labour, right, under supervised psychologist, so your provisional psychologist before you become obviously registered um, and be practicing. That's mm -hmm. a lot of years. And who can afford to be unpaid for two years if you, mm -hmm. <laughs> unless you've got resources behind you to be able to do that? Um, so I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I had to work. I've had to work throughout my whole career of my whole life. Um, so I thought this is the work, the, the job that was offered to me at the Australian Red Cross was just perfect. I still get to work with communities that I love. It's the communities are going through experiences that I'm familiar with. And I had knowledge of community services and programs that I could support and funnel or refer them to. And so that's what I did um, was work for yeah, the Australian Red Cross, predominantly with Vietnamese families who were experiencing PTSD, post-traumatic stress mm -hmm. disorder. And at the time it was, I wouldn't say it's new. It's always been there, but often not talked about. Mm -hmm. People were ashamed. As you said earlier, um, mm -hmm. Christine, the Australian community is still very much in its infancy in recognizing mental health and talking freely about mental health and that mental health impacts all of us at some point in our life right but we hide that away it's a dirty secret it is a yeah. shame it is you know you don't air your dirty linen because you for some reason you're seen to be weaker you're mm -hmm. incapable so I think all of that comes mm -hmm. into play and no one talks about it but when they come and talk to me as a one-on-one -on -one session they're telling mm -hmm. me all this stuff that I'm saying well you need to you know, you need to go and see a doctor. You can't yeah. manage, right, these nightmares. You can't manage the panic attacks. You can't manage the anxiety attacks on your own. You need mm -hmm. support. And they were doing that on their own. They were self-medicating through other forms of like substance abuse, right, violence, gambling. And mm -hmm. that was so um, uh, prevalent within my community at the yeah. time. And Definitely. So, yeah. Because a lot of that trauma, people don't realize how much it is an underlying current. Now, talk to me a little bit about um, your company, Our Race. Now, you, you mentioned it in the beginning, and I know that it's informed in large by, you know, your, your early on experiences. So tell us a bit about that and how that came about. Yeah, so that came about when, it's a bit controversial in the sense mm -hmm. that, um my my employer my government employer right so after I left the Australian Red Cross I went into government federal government because I wanted to help also more people and the organization that I was working for pretty much supports every Australian in Australia 
um, there, there, there would be interface. Every Australian would have interface with this government department, right, at one stage of their life. And so I went there to support and advocate for communities that are under-resourced and disadvantaged. And through this work uh, in this government organisation, I worked with them up to 17 years. Up until last year, beginning, so mid-last year, I resigned from that position. And it's because some of the the conversations and the work that I was driving was around anti-racism. Mm-hmm. It was around, first it was around diversity inclusion, you know, diversity inclusion and belonging, all of mm-hmm. those things that are very glossy and they're mm-hmm. buzzwords, right? Mm-hmm. But underpinning all of that is around we need to talk about racism and the impacts mm-hmm. of racism. Mm-hmm. We need to talk about something that is happening because if we don't talk about it, we can't resolve it. We can't name it. How can we proceed to talk about solutions? But also solutions aren't a one-size-fits-all. Everybody's experience of racism is going to be different, but we don't want to listen to people. We don't even want to not just listen, we don't even want to recognise their background or Mm -hmm. their experience, sorry, their background, their cultural heritage, which sometimes is the main identifier of the races experiences that they encounter right and so I worked in yeah this organization for that period of time driving um, conversations around racism or Mm -hmm. anti-racism and moving people towards that anti-racist practice and I my co-founder of our race and I met actually there and we connected on the same values and the same um vision of Mm -hmm. you know when we have these conversations and we bring people in to share their experience of what has happened to them there's a part here that it's missing because when we relived a traumatic experience or an event we need support we need to and, and not just the support after or before but we need to first build a relationship with them we can't just say, hey, Christine, you've got this story, right? I've got this platform or I've got this channel for you to share and hopefully change people's minds and behaviours and say, oh, Christine, come and just do that. It's, it's Just do it. You know, what's mm-hmm. the harm? Look mm-hmm. at the impact. You might be able to change people's attitudes and they might be changed for the better. So that's mm-hmm. the hope. And that's a vision that you mm-hmm. as a um, an invitee, right, to do mm-hmm. that event would think, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. But we don't recognise and we don't understand that the person who's going to tell that story, it's their life. It's, you yeah. know, you're, you're bringing, it's their existence. Mm-hmm. It's their integrity. It's their honour. It's everything that they bring because we're a whole person funny enough, right? We can't, Mm -hmm. some people can compartmentalize, yes, to heal and to recover, Mm -hmm. but most of us bring our whole self. And on a particular day, if you ask me how I feel, I'm going to say, oh, today I'm going to not, not so good. But if you ask Mm -hmm. me in three hours time, I might feel better. I'm, you know, so we evolve. And so we recognize that what we were doing 
And we were complicit, my co-founder and I, we were so complicit in this system because it is a system. It's a formulaic, it's a template, it's a system that we all have to work within and we toe the line, we we apply the rules Mm -hmm. um, and we just go along and behave, right, and and Mm -hmm. do it. Mm-hmm. And not question anything, similar to our education system. Yeah. So I think and similar education- to the fact that it hasn't changed. That questioning has, while it's evolved a bit, there's still a lot of it that's remained the same over time. It is getting better because we are. I mean, we're having this kind of conversation. Um. So so I think mm. I think a lot of that a lot of that is. Um, is evolving. So I'm interested. I know you've developed a framework for storytelling um, with with our race and you talk about um, the values and the principles around which um, even mass media has been built on where, and I learned this from, you know, the work that you do and the interactions with you do, is how to tell, um, you know, a story ethically how to, you know, uphold the value of a story holder. That was the first time mm. I'd heard that that terminology was through, you know, the work, the work that you do. Can you talk a bit about, you know, how media um, and even companies indirectly exploit storytelling, particularly of marginalized communities where they, and I, I, I learned this model from you because I hadn't even actually looked at it in that way until you raised it. Whereas you've got, you know, multi-million dollar businesses that have been built on people's stories, right? Mm, yeah. But then when you look at the person who actually tells that story and contributes, they've earned nothing from exactly. that story. And yet it's theirs, you know? Yeah. Talk a little bit about yeah. your ethical storytelling framework. Yeah, so, you know, when we um, establish our race in 2016, my co-founder, Doug Cronin and myself, we wanted to look at what was happening out there, right? Um, What was happening out there in the community, in the broader society, but then I took it back to my own lived experience. So in my own lived experience in the corporate space, in government, because I was delivering training to senior leaders um, and across the country, my story was asked, right? My story was what well, I was asked to share my story as well. And so the the same formula that I talked about earlier of the extraction of say, you know, you've got a story, Christine, can you come? This is our purpose, right? This is our message. Can you mm-hmm. just come and share your story? And we, we would do everything around that. You don't, you know, you just come and share your story. That's it. We don't pay you. Uh, we don't provide you with any additional support. You're not part of the design and the programming, the creation of what that message is going to look like, right? Mm-hmm. And, and once you give consent or if you say yes, which is consent, a verbal consent, mm-hmm. there's no formal consent, then your story belongs to us. Mm-hmm. We we will determine that. And so that the same thing happened to me. And I saw how it was so transactional, mm-hmm. so transactional. And I think, you know, when you're saying that mass media or huge multinational organizations with you know, massive brands are using people's stories, their customers, their stakeholders, right, their employees' stories that they don't own, but they are profiting from that, 
we start asking the question, why do they have to profit? Can that profit be shared? Can we do it in a better way? Can we use storytelling practices? Can we use, sorry, yes, storytelling in a better way where everyone is looked after? And so mm-hmm. the story holder, which is a term that we didn't coin, but our good friend, um, Irfan Deliri, who um, is, yeah, an amazing, amazing anti-racist educator and powerful speaker, he came up with that. He came up with that term and we asked <laughs> if we could use that. And we, and I thought, you know, in us shaping and putting together the framework, our test, which is transformational ethical storytelling framework mm-hmm. and the principles that sit within that, we also, and to change the narrative that's out there, we also had to change the language because language matters, right? Mm-hmm. Language, we have to pretty much decolonize. We have to decolonize this space. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, we have to either reclaim or we have to coin our own terms and language so that we can put it out there where language has the ability to carry power. Mm-hmm. So we can empower our communities that have been under, um, will have been historically displaced or historically um, uh, disadvantaged, then we need to give them the tools to be able to use to empower them. So that was when we put together the framework, the test framework, and Mm -hmm. we went through two, three years of evolution and work, hard work. We got one of the biggest law firm well um for good law firm uh social kind Mm -hmm. of justice law firm in the country mark lawyers Mm -hmm. supporting us they gave us a lot of their free hours legal hours and they helped us put together a legal framework and we also got support from terry jenke and um associates terry jenke is a first nations lawyer who is the top lawyer pretty much i think in the world right Mm -hmm around intellectual um, uh, property and copyright for First Nations stories, artifacts, memories, yeah, the IP pretty much for mm-hmm. um, First Nations um, uh, knowledge right, and how that's used. So from arts to, you know, um, from, yeah, the, her, the artists to creatives in, in the film um, and, you know, songs, all of those, you know, industries. So Terry Jenke, and we wanted to be grounded in First Nations um, or be informed by First Nations experience as well because what we're going to put out there should apply and should be useful and helpful and accessible to everybody. And the respect that, you know, we're on, we're living on stolen land here. We're Mm -hmm. beneficiaries right, of the displacement, the genocide that happened here. And as a migrant, I am always aware of my position and my place and my privileges, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And so we went and worked with both of those law, uh, law firms to put together our massive framework and it steps out the details. The, it's pretty much a guideline of how you practice safe, ethical storytelling, so the five key principles that sits within, right, test is that the first one, you have to have free, prior and ongoing informed consent from the person who owns that story. So whoever owns this, when I say owns the story, it's the story holder, 
if you have the experience, if you create the artwork, if you create the music, if you compose a piece of music, or you put out there a tweet, uh, that is your story. That is your product. That is your story. And if that piece of work is taken without your consent, then it's not ethical. If you mm -hmm. haven't been asked to allow someone to use what you've put out there into the world, then and you haven't been involved in that, then that's wrong. Mm -hmm. But that's what's been happening, right? Mm -hmm. Or you give consent and it could be your picture. It could be a picture or it could be a video that you record. It could be your voice, for example. If you even give consent, sometimes the consent form that you, you signed the legal consent form that many organizations, large corporations give you to sign, if you read the fine print, it will say that by signing this, we own the right to what you give us forever and we can do whatever we want, want with it. So usually these consent and contracts are written in the favor of that organization. And most times, not all, most there's no compensation, there's no remuneration that's given or negotiated, right, with the person who owns that story. So it's usually asked for free or mm -hmm. if it's not even asked, it's extracted, it's taken without your consent and you find out later or you give consent and then you see your picture 10 years from now and you thought, oh, I didn't agree to you using my photo to um, talk about a message that I don't agree with, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, like, you know, it could be slave labor, right, that you hold a very strong view against, but through a campaign that you did previously on another mm -hmm. um, social cause, for example, that you're passionate about, but that same company has, you know, um, got has gotten your consent from that first campaign, they can take that image of yours and put it somewhere else and they don't have to ask you and attach it to a different message that you might not agree with. So that's mm. why, you know, we believe... they own Because they, the, they own the image and you signed your right. Yeah, away. because you signed it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And, and so what we found through this whole process, speaking to our lawyers, the lawyers that have been working with us, is that in, for, in copyright law... You, if I was to tell you a story and you record that, Christine, if I tell you my story and you mm -hmm. record that, you actually owned mm -hmm. that piece of my story that I've mm -hmm. told you. Mm -hmm. So I don't have a right over that. Mm -hmm. The way in which we resolve that is to make sure we educate the story holder and we mm -hmm. say, here, before I do that, here is a consent form, right, mm -hmm. that is mm -hmm. in layman's term. So it's mm -hmm. not legal speak. It's there's no fine print. Mm -hmm. I've outlined my conditions. Mm -hmm. Do you agree to my conditions? Is that my story is worth mm -hmm. this much, right? Mm -hmm. It's that you use it for this period of time only and mm -hmm. it is for this particular campaign or message only. But if you do need to change it and you want to use it later on, that you have to come back, you should come back. Ethically, mm -hmm. you should come back. And, and ask me. Form and ask me. Yeah. Right? That that's that's kind of you know how um adult relationships should work. But we know in business world it is very commercialized, it mm -hmm. is fast-paced, but that shouldn't be a practice for harming others because there's mm. harm 
that is attached to that. And we don't often get to speak about the harm and the trauma. Do you, that think, business, do you think business is aware of that harm um, and just ignores it? Or do you think there's a there's an undercurrent of unconscious bias around the whole storytelling? Because I'm in the diversity, equity and inclusion uh, space, and that's all about storytelling. That's all about mm, people's yeah. experiences. So every single day on the daily, on the hour, every hour, I'm gathering somebody's story because how I receive something and how you receive it based on our backgrounds, based on so many different things, rings different in different contexts and that's why I feel there's a laziness in how mm -hmm. corporates approach diversity equity and inclusion is because you've got to be conscious you can't approach the conversation unconsciously but I find in the area of marketing in the area of um, mm -hmm. even how news is reported and all of this and particularly with the soundbite and I'm, I'm just as guilty as the next person. I get my news and sound bites now. I, yeah. don't, I do not have the patience to sit through. I don't even know who's sitting through a whole nine news bulletin. You know, I go and I look at the headlines, interested in that, not interested in that, interested in yeah. that. And that's all I consume, right? Yeah. So I think mm -hmm. there's an undercurrent of unconsciousness around harm in terms of, so it's like, mm -hmm. well, how is that harming? Because I think, and a lot of my work in the domestic and family violence space also educated me that harm is beyond physical. Because yes. most of us, when we think of harm, we think of injury. And when we think of injury, we only think of physical injury because it's what we can see. It's what we can relate. It's what we traditionally go to the doctor. It's like mental health. Right. It's yeah. like mental health. Uh, it, it is. It is. It is mental health. So in the space of harm, as you brought it up with the harm that, you know, uninformed consent, even when you take somebody's um, words out of context, you know, and you see it now with people, you know, high profile people suing the media mm -hmm. and Rupert Murdoch incidentally just settled. Um, I mean, you know, Fox News, for goodness sake, the amount of harm that news channel does, um, yeah. you know, but Rupert Murdoch paid some chump change, some yeah. trillion dollars um, for lying. And he knew this as yeah. chairperson. So it's quite intrinsically built in to yeah. systems and powers, this undercurrent of whether it's conscious or unconscious, because I think in the Rupert Murdoch case, it was deliberate and they yeah. knew exactly what they were doing. It's a business model. But it's a business model. So, but there is a layer of unconsciousness around it. So for the small business owner, so if we move yeah. away from big business, mm -hmm. right, and we go to the small business owner who isn't aware, right, who uh, comes into this model, mm -hmm. how could they, you know, your mom and dad business, how could they apply the test principles when they're collecting information, say for their marketing campaign, mm -hmm. when they're collecting information that they put up on the social media, when they're collecting information, because right now that is how business, uh, business is formed on social media, um, on um, storytelling, like storytelling is oh. such a core part of yeah. business now because of, you know, people can't see, but I'm holding up my phone as an example because of how the busyness that constantly being connected has created. I mean, Facebook, if you look at Facebook's model, mm. they don't create anything. They built a platform on which all of us, you know, and that's yeah. the model now. Instagram is the same. Yeah. Like, And so do you think there, 
mom and dad businesses, what can they do to raise their level of unconsciousness? Because I, I sincerely believe those small businesses out there don't actually understand that the harm that that causes. Causes, yeah. If I can answer your first question, mm-hmm. right, is that whether it is, yeah, um, conscious, conscious or unconscious, but, you know, media, right, mm-hmm. and large businesses, are they aware of what they're doing? Mm-hmm. Personally, I think they are aware because, as we said, it's a business model and it's a business okay. model that generates a lot of money, right? So they deal in that. And if it's creating a lot of money and generating that much profit for you, why would you stop? And it's a business model that has proven over centuries to be successful. Why would you stop? So mm-hmm. the important between the connection, I think, and the importance between what large, you know, the, the big end of town, what they're doing and what the smaller operating uh, mum and dad operated businesses are doing there is a huge connection because larger businesses have a lot of, they hold a lot of power and influence with government. It's government as well, right? So systems in government, in our country, perpetuate that harm because that is how the business has always been conducted. So it hold, it maintains the power that is to those that will essentially um, make decisions for majority of us. A few of people make decisions for many of us and it impacts our daily lives and us either creates the harm or perpetuates ongoing harm and trauma. So I think big businesses are aware of what they're doing and they're very strategic in how they do that, right? through our experience of the test principles. So as I said, the five principles, and I'll get to, you know, what what can small businesses do and whether they are conscious of that is that we've got, you know, the, the first principle, free, prior, ongoing and informed consent. Second principle is resourcing and sensitivity. So what mm-hmm. kind of resourcing and support do we provide the community or the person, the story holder that's going to give you their um, lived experience to share mm-hmm. empowerment how are you inviting them in to be part of creating the message how are yeah. you how are they a part of the co-designed mm-hmm. what what is where is their voice going to be placed right and is that voice going to be positioned in a negative or a positive light are they going to abuse that is it empowering or disempowering and i find that you know there's so many examples of disempowerment particularly Mm -hmm. of voices that are from people of color Mm -hmm. right because we're you know diversity isn't just about looking you know having rainbow um a rainbow you know picture it's it's about also how do people feel when they're part of that process or they're part of that organization or part of the campaign or event it's about how mm-hmm. they're made to feel. So I think empower, empowerment is extremely, extremely important um, mm-hmm. to, to put out there. The you know, the fourth is that co-design and collaboration. Is it, it's not just a co-design with the individual, but it's also with their communities. It's with their communities mm-hmm. as well, because most people belong to a community. Yeah. You know, we want to be a part of a community and we mm-hmm. I, our identity comes from our our group 
right? Mm -hmm. Our community. So um, co-design collaboration is our fourth principle and then the integrity of the story. So at the end, the end product, does mm -hmm. it really reflect the story that the story holder wanted to put out there and not, you know, edited and um, readjusted to suit the message of the organization or the brand of the organization? Mm -hmm. So I think that's really key to understand that with the five principles, that we work through that, many businesses, big or small, can look at their systems, can look at their procedures, their processes that they have in place, business systems, that can start to question whether they're doing it already, their current practice is unconscious, right? Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, we, we live and swim in a world that is already biased. We mm -hmm. are born into a world, right, that is already racist and biased. So we're absorbing all of that. And then you have mm -hmm. to decipher as you grow up, right? Yeah. You have to decipher what's right for me, what is uh, morally, um, you know, sound and what isn't, what's mm -hmm. ethical, what isn't, right? You grapple with all of that. And so inherently you're going to have blind spots. You're going to not be able to see things that others who are less privileged than you would be able to see and experience worse than you so I think it's being able to understand that we are all biased right that our yes, unconscious bias definitely that I think in all of my trainings that's one of the fundamental things I always say to people is we all have bias right bias in and of itself it, it's the way we sort through the world we have yeah. to have bias I mean we are all biased right and so if we can collectively accept that it's the unconscious bit yeah. That is what needs managing. And particularly if you're in a position of influence, particularly if you're in a position where your decisions are impacting other people and your decision, you are you're not managing your unconscious bias, firstly by recognizing that, hey, look, I have blind spots here. Yeah. And, because, and it is a blind spot. So by yes. virtue of the fact that I have a blind spot, it means I don't know it. I cannot see it. Yeah. So yeah. how do I bring somebody with a different perspective that can put the spotlight on things that I don't see, don't see. that I don't, that I don't, mm. that I don't understand. So now we have unfortunately gone a bit over time in terms of our, our wonderful conversation, but you are so such a wealth of knowledge um, in this space. How can people get in touch with um, the conversations around our race? How, how can people get in touch with the amazing work that you and your business partner are doing and really bringing these test principles into ethical storytelling to life? Um, yeah. You're doing a lot of work. How can people keep in touch and get into this community um, that you are building? Oh, well, first thing is they can come to our website, visit our website. It's um, ourrace.com.au. And we have got massive, um, oh, oh, we've got a lot of information on there and we're keeping, well, we're adding more to it, but we've got a blog as well. So there's a blog, there's a podcast. We talk about this stuff. We talk about in our podcast, share experiences of, uh, how many, you know, how many week in March um, just finished and mm -hmm. kind of talk about how that is shared and the message of that across our community and, our, and, and the country. And I kind of shared a little bit of my opinion around that because Australia is still very mm -hmm. risk adverse 
in having these mm-hmm. conversations. So mm-hmm. our website has got a lot of information there We where you can also get free resources, free mm-hmm. resources around um, a guide, a checklist, and even just, you know, example of consent form, what a consent form should look like. So you, you'll get exposure to some of the tools and the resources that we've developed, the conversations that we're having, some of our partners who and our major supporters, we've had amazing support from writers, journalists, um, researchers, you know, and they're writing articles about us. They're talking to their colleagues and their sector about what we do. We run public workshops as well. So we run workshops where we'll give you a bit of a taster on what we're talking about, what the principles really mean, how to apply that. What mm-hmm. we really love to do is work one-on-one through our collaborative consulting piece of work, mm-hmm. sit with organizations who have been unconscious in their practice mm-hmm. of um, doing harmful storytelling and want mm-hmm. to change. And the amazing thing here is We've had huge, massive interest from the mental health space, youth mm-hmm. mental health spaces. So they're realizing, recognizing that, you know, we have been using our consumers' um, stories and we're putting them in front of politicians and policymakers, but we're not supporting them in the right way. We're not doing it well and we are looking for a framework. We're looking for a roadmap. We're looking for something to help us do it properly. And so mm-hmm. we're, I'm getting um, I'm getting interest from yeah, organizations, you know, in health, in, in hospitals saying that mm-hmm. we found what you've done on the internet. Can mm-hmm. we work with you and and you know um, use your framework? And we said, sure, you know. So we would definitely love to work with any organization and go through our framework help you go through that and get to the point where we certify you Mm -hmm. so certification is our aim is if Mm -hmm. we get enough organization and businesses to be Mm -hmm. test certified that Mm -hmm. means that we are changing this game we're reimagining how storytelling is done we can still have really good wholesome storytelling where everybody wins and when I say everybody wins is businesses can still make their money but Mm -hmm. you've got the story holder and the communities coming along as part of the journey is their experience their voice is embedded in that whole process right they Mm -hmm. have they get a say and if when I say they get a say, that say could be, yep, I'm happy to go ahead with, you know, and support what you do, or I'm happy for now, but if I need to, and I have to step out, I will step out and I will tell you. And you yeah. will have processes in place to be able to manage that. And you would respect that. So yeah. we have worked with APRA AMCOS, like in the music industry, mm-hmm. to help them prepare their, say, community engagement strategy so mm-hmm. that it is embedded in our test, like our test principles is embedded in their community engagement strategy. How do they deal with their members, their artists, mm-hmm. their creatives, right? And so how do they bring, in, bring them in into the conversation? Where does the power, right, get shared? Mm-hmm. How does it get shared? Because it needs to be shared. Right, mm-hmm. And so also prioritizing people with the lived experience. We believe mm-hmm. that our race, that lived experience should be the highest form of knowledge. And mm-hmm. we are not seeing that 
currently uh, happening more. Uh, sorry, we're not seeing that happen as much as we would like. We would see it happen more and we're pushing for that. So support us, come on to our website, read, us, um, read what we've got up there, reach out. There's a form that you can fill in to reach out mm -hmm. to us. We're a nonprofit. So we've got DGR status. So if you have anyone who would love to support the work that we do and mm -hmm. have some spare change, please mm -hmm. throw it behind us because what we would love to continue to do is run public workshops or story what we call storyholder workshops mm -hmm. for storyholders, but it would be free. It would always be free for them. Mm -hmm. So it's accessible, it's whether online or in person. And our storyholder guide, which is the checklist for a storyholder to ask questions mm -hmm. of anyone coming to ask them to share their story, is that we translate that storyholder guide into community languages. We've got it in about eight languages at the moment through the generosity mm -hmm. of our business partners. However, mm -hmm. we would love to translate it into over 200 languages because that's the diversity of Australia. That um, is the diversity of Australia. Yeah. So, thank you so much. So we will put your details on our website, um, sorry, on our LinkedIn page where we, we post um information about uh you know the the people that we have interviewed so along with together with this podcast we will put links to uh to your website which um you know i had a look at quickly and it's it's really evolving and loving everything that um that is on there so thank you so much for your energy for your time for your passion about this really complex topic which i don't believe we're having mm -hmm. enough of a yeah. positive um, informed conversation about and it's really one of the things that I really enjoy about talking to you is you are informed and you're not coming at this from some theoretical this is something you've invested your life into this is something you really 100%. really understand and you're also putting out solutions so you're not just yeah. throwing bombs out there it's like no. no I'm actually saying there's a better way for us to do what we um have been doing but as with all, as my Angela says, when you know better, you do better. So that yeah. is the challenge. Now we know better about storytelling. Let's do, do better. better, you know, and, Amazing. Um, and that's, that's just, you know, a wonderful message that we get from all of the work that you and Doug do, which you are extremely passionate about. And I'm so honored that we we're able to talk to you in this extended um, episode and get to really understand what TEST is about, what our race is about, because I think it's a really critical topic, and particularly in the area of diversity, equity, and inclusion. As a consultant in this space, going in, um, talking to people, there's a massive threat response when the word race is mm. mentioned. Um, and that threat response means conversation shut down, nobody hears you, um, and you can't proceed. We have to work a way to get past that. We have to have conversations in a way that moves us forward. We have to have tools that look at changing. We cannot do things the way we've done them before. And, you know, as we talked about our educational system, things are slow to change. Look at the way the world looks today, and we're still teaching people in the same way that my mother learned. And that to Absolutely. me, it makes no sense. Um, no sense. But that's the world we live in. It's very slow to change, but change must happen and change will happen from people like yourself who are passionate advocates uh, for changing other people's stories so that what you went through as that 10-year-old refugee uh, in a camp 
and a refugee um, hostel here in a refugee school environment here in Australia, another child does not have to go through that same experience. So I want to thank you, Jung, for bringing your passion and your A-game uh, to the podcast. Uh, here to here today. So from um, our listeners, uh, thank you very much for tuning in and for staying and for listening. I think this was a very important topic to get out. It was a very important conversation. I'm a big fan of the work that uh, Jung does in this space. Been watching her build um, this and she puts an insane amount of hours uh, <laughs> into putting out, um, you know, amazing work uh, literally for free. Uh, that people can go out and benefit. So log on to our race, uh, follow this amazing woman and her work. Um, she really is um, the real deal in terms of what you see is what you get. She really is extremely passionate about changing the world one person, one organization at a time in how we, uh, we manage our storytelling and how we hold true to the story holder and make sure that we're not unintentionally exploiting um, people's stories for financial gain without necessarily recognizing the source and making sure that the source is also benefiting in that in that space. And that benefit does not always have to be financial, but it certainly has to be in keeping with the intent and the principles on which that person allowed you in the first place to use their image, to use their story. So I really hope to do more work with this amazing woman in this space, um, because I think, uh, you know, in the work that we do as diversity, equity and inclusion consultants, it's really, really important because we're, we're in the storytelling business, like we come across stories mm -hmm. a dime a dozen. So thank you, everybody. Until next time, when we have another episode of Sisters in Colour, I'd like to thank you, everybody. Uh, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Utana Global, uh, for sponsoring yet another episode. Um, until next time, goodbye. <laughs>